We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Mufa Harib. Mufa is an advisor to MTV Lebanon and a contributor to the Daily Star. His recent piece in the Daily Star, Virtual Victory Lap by Tehran in Lebanon, is mentioned in this episode, and the link is available in the episode's details box. We discuss sovereignty, negotiations between Iran and the U.S., and a shifting media landscape, from conventional outlets to independent voices. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. lucky when I can sort of message someone early in the day I think it must have been maybe late morning early afternoon <laughs> and sort of a subject that I think is on everyone's mind and it's something that you've been speaking about you've been writing about and it's really an honor that several hours later sun's down coronavirus <laughs> there isn't much to do you're giving me your free time and it means a lot to me. I, I want thank to you for uh, thank you for having me, Ronnie. I really appreciate. It. Thank you. I, I'm I'm an, I'm a fan, and I'm a fan of, you, of both things: your written word and your recent. Uh, well, in in many ways, your conversations, and I think they're they're happening all the time. Most recently, I, I listened to you in the Octopus series with Giselle Khoury, uh-huh. and I think even earlier today, I was speaking to a, a journalist, uh, Yumna Fawaz sort of oh, yeah. just, just having a conversation and it's all about the same subject. The same issue mm-hmm. is coming up, I think, all the time. And I think it's difficult to sort of escape it. So if you don't mind, we can jump right in. Uh, first, I'm going to highlight the most recent article in the Daily Star, Virtual Victory Lap by Tehran in Lebanon. And I think it should be maybe, uh, it should be emphasized that despite all the well-intentioned effort made by the average Lebanese, whether it's on the street, whether it's civil society, whether it's the few heroic politicians that we've seen, that despite the most valiant efforts, uh, it seems like the big decisions are not taking place in Lebanon. And it's, it, it appears, it appears, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong here, it appears that geopolitics remains the driving force for better or worse, grand bargains, negotiations that don't take place in Lebanon, but impact Lebanon, seems to be the framework that we're stuck in. And I'll start it there. We can dive deep into the subject, but I just want to start on the superficial level. Are the big answers outside? Or, or, Uh, and, and I'll maybe ask the inverse as well. Is that something we should ignore and focus on creating decisions from within? Okay. Thank you. Thank you again, Ronnie, for, uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, the problem that we are facing, you know, the geopolitical realities don't change. 
We're going to have the same borders. We're going to have the same neighbors. That's Lebanon. That's where we exist. And uh, the problem is we are not a player. We don't have a seat on the table. Mm-hmm. When they make those decisions, whether big decisions or regional decisions, Lebanon is non-existent. We, we, we are not relevant anymore. We don't know what is our foreign policy or our policy about almost anything. Mm-hmm. So even if let's assume the world wants to invite us, so to participate, give us a seat on the table. We don't. We sp- we're not a house of too many mansions. We're, we're, we're a country with too many opinions. We, and and everything, is a, everything is a point of view, Ronnie. We, we don't have a climate policy. We don't know anything about our national security. We don't have an economic plan. A, a country is not on the verge of collapsing. It has collapsed. We don't have a plan. Recovery plan. We don't have a vaccination plan. So let's not blame the regional powers or the world for not, you know, paying attention to our point of view because we don't have one. So how can you be invited to sit on the table when you have nothing to say? That's the problem. People care about Lebanon, but we have to move it one notch up. We cannot just say the world cares about Lebanon from a moral and shared values perspective. We have to have shared interests. We have to show the world and we have to show our neighbors the powerful one, that we are relevant. Today, we are relevant. From the surface, we have an external shell called government. We have embassies, we have ministers. We, we, we look like we're a normal country, but we are not. I hate to say we're becoming a joke. And, and the world are realizing that. And, and, and it's, it's kind of, it hurts. It hurts. If you have any feeling left toward this country that we all love, it hurts to see when you go outside and you live outside and I live outside and we travel a lot, people say, pity Lebanon, it's haram, it's, it's a good place. And then there's nothing we can do about it. And, I know it's going to be a good conversation. I know it's going to start because you've already done two things. You've referenced Kamel Salibi and Robert Fisk. <laughs> and you're telling a story. So you're a storyteller as well. So you've already set the terrain. But I'm going to, I'm going to pick up. We're having a conversation. You know, I'm not going to do an academic answer or like a diplomatic <laughs> answer. What? Let's enjoy it. You, you promised me we're, we're going to have a, let's enjoy it. Let's have a. I'm going to pick your brain on that subject. And I think in the background, there's the, there's the obvious issue, which is that political change in Lebanon requires some structure on the ground. And mm-hmm. at the same time, the magic of October 17, and it's been emphasized over and over and over, that it was fluid. It was leaderless. It captured the attention of many people half the country rose up at some point, and it was a leaderless sort of occasion. But the political evolution of that moment did not occur in the sense that there's no structure, there's no, there's no organization yet, yet. But I'm going to ask you the sort of from, from the other side, is that a consequence of the geopolitical situation? So in other words, now I'm going to reference this going back. That's, that, that's very deep. That's very deep. It's worth, it's worth yeah. you know, I, I may not have a definite answer, but let's brainstorm about it. But it's I, worth I, discussing. Okay, and I'm going to pause it sort of, I'm going to offer a time frame that in the last 15 years or 16 years, there have been three massive uprisings. One of them, March 14, 2005. The other one, a very small scale Beirut-focused you stink movement, that was accountability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The October mm-hmm. 17, which is sort of all of the above at once. And each occasion, it's, it seems like 
Despite the valiant efforts at trying to organize, there's a reluctance, if not an outright fear, that political violence could be used and has been used to, to crush the organizations that should take hold. And I, you can say as much as you'd like about that, because I know it's a long time frame. I know it's lumping a lot of things together, but I think it is worth noting because in just two, two weeks ago, two weeks or so, there was another assassination. And those assassinations are still part of our day-to-day -day life in Lebanon. And there's that fear. You get too high up in the structure, you get crushed. So I'd like to pick your brain on that issue alone. Why the organization sure. doesn't, doesn't happen? Look, it's uh, the October 17th. We used to say you don't need a central leadership. It's mm -hmm. crowd leading because we don't know what we don't know. With time, we may see leaders graduating from the street. It happens everywhere, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Sometimes because of the system, because of the political system in a given country, you may not know an address, who is leading this. But when the revolution or any movement succeeds, you begin to discover who was behind it. But I personally believe one of the main obstacles that keeping us from achieving concrete results and driving home the revolution is simply because we don't have a central target. What I mean by that, in mm -hmm. Egypt, everybody took down the street because it was Mubarak mm -hmm. in Tunis. Tunisia, in Iran, it was the Shah of Iran. In Lebanon, yeah. you have two dictators in every single type, in every single sect. So you need, you need, you have 18, 18 sects, five major ones. You need 10 revolutions to change realities in every single sect before you can have a national revolution that can achieve the desired outcome. And, and we Lebanese, I think it's a culture cultural thing. We love shortcuts. One year is nothing. Right. Oh, we still complain. We don't have a we don't have a mechanism where about you can bring about a change if you go through the system. That leads people to be kind of it leads to despair, leads people to be depressed. But one year is nothing. You cannot we need shortcuts. We are used to achieving things in a very short period of time. It doesn't work that way. You have to try once and again, and again, and again. And unfortunately, the main events that you have mentioned since March 14, 205, it was a, as a result of an assassination. There is always a factor that came from the outside, from your enemy, gave you an opportunity to take down the street and revolt. I don't know right. when you can take the initiative. I think October 17, I wouldn't say it was because of the WhatsApp sixth sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, actually. It, it, it was brewing. You need a spark. But at one point, we have to say, no, we have to plan. Enough is enough. And really put a plan. Sometimes you may need to go violent somewhere because you can't do an omelet. This is the, uh, the, uh, the, the Lebanese saying, you cannot do You cannot do an, an omelet if you don't crack eggs. You cannot complain. They're hitting me. Every single revolution from the U.S. to Argentina to to the, the Soviet bloc, whatever you need, there is some sort of a violence because you are you are fighting a deeply rooted corrupt system from the first day Lebanon gained independence. This is not easy. It's a very entrenched political clique. It's it's a and 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 they always when when they are cornered, they raise the card of Ta'ifi, religious card because they can rally people behind them. As long as we cannot bypass the sectarian divisions, I'm afraid 
that there is nothing we can achieve because there is always someone who can use that card and they use it. Guess why? Because it's effective. One, mm-hmm. a, a, one turban is enough to disperse a big demonstration. One turban. I'm going so, to... I'm going to go deeper with your permission, because I think this is this Please. is a subject that needs to be sort of dissected as much as possible. October 17, from my understanding, what I saw in the streets of Beirut and throughout the country was in a way what you're describing, that each community decided to hold their own leadership to account almost at the same level, at least in the at least in the initial days and perhaps weeks. So there was a sort of I mean, it's silly to mention this, but I think it's important. The TV screens that were split, different geographies, sure. different cities, all looking the same, all sounding the same. You couldn't tell at some point if it's Nabatia or Trablus or Beirut, for that matter. It looked the same. It felt the same. So it, it at least on the surface, it looked like there was a domestic accountability that was genuinely domestic. But then a few weeks, perhaps more so a few months later, political violence seems to win. And I, know, I appreciate what you're saying, that violence requ- there's some level of violence that may be required to affect change. But could it be argued that the political violence that is not born out of the protest movement, but rather a consequence of the geopolitics, that that type of violence, whether, whether it's assassinations or for that matter, outright intimidation, and we saw degrees of it in the initial weeks and months, that that is the ultimate stumbling block to bringing about the change that, you, that you're describing in ex-Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc, all those success stories that should have happened and don't. Uh, look, I, 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 I think the first week I agree with you. You feel like there is a domestic unified, everybody's talking the same language. Mm-hmm. Everybody is complaining about the same issues. But when they started to say, everyone, you started to see people saying, no, but accept my leader. This is the first crack. Mm-hmm. And when you have that first crack, we started to see divisions. And then the power, the, the, the power of gravities prevailed at the end. Assassinations are a different ballgame in my view. Assassinations mm-hmm. cannot kill a revolution because those who assassinate, they know why they assassinate because they believe that through this assassination, they can change the course of events that were not going according to their own liking. Mm -hmm. You don't assassinate if you're state sponsor of terror. You don't assassinate because you are vindictive or because of uh, uh, you're looking for revenge. These are tribes and mobs and, and they do these kind of things, but state sponsor and terrorism sponsored by states. First, they don't claim responsibility. This is one of the first symptoms. When you, when you have a terrorist attack, nobody claims responsibility. We know it's a state sponsor. And second, they resort to this kind of behavior because they are trying to change the course and they want to be a turning point so they can change the course of events because they don't see it working to their advantage. So I don't think the revolution in Lebanon especially the October 17 movement, you want to call it an uprising, a pave or whatever. It's a revolution, people calling for a change. It's a revolution. But assassination did not kill or kind of, you know, uh, uh, reign against the, the revolution. Assassination, in my view, is more with the geopolitical 
constraints that you are talking about. I'm curious about your perspective then, and I'm not challenging, actually, I'm, I'm trying to understand it in the, in the sort of the long oh, view. Please uh, challenge it. Please yeah. challenge it. I mean, in, um, I'll, I'm, in, in a respectful way, I'm trying to actually learn from that narrative. Look, I'm, I, I'm, 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 brain, I'm brainstorming. I mean, I'm brainstorming. Yeah, exactly. Some of yeah. the ideas I'm saying, I just, they just, you inspired me to say it that way. So. <laughs> no, but I, I, I see the way you're describing it, and it, it makes, it adds up that you did not have assassinations post October 17, with the exception of Lukman Slim. Mm -hmm. So there's one. At that said, though, that said, going back a bit in time, just in terms of inertia, would it be fair to say, from, from what you're describing, that the multiple assassinations that took place after March 14, 2005, and the attempted ones that happened, and the successful ones prior to that, mm -hmm. so going down the list from 2004 to, to 2013, so that sort of long stretch, mm -hmm. would, would it be, is it, is it, is it safe to say that that moment in time, the aspirations of that uprising or revolution or whatever you want mm -hmm. to call it, was mm -hmm. decimated by assassinations, but more broadly speaking, political violence, that this was a weapon that could be used to crush a political alternative, as opposed to negotiating things in, in parliament or something that you would want to see as a, as a substitute for that. And I know that these are two different moments and, and two different, perhaps two different ideas altogether. March 14, and October 17 are probably different, different chapters. But that said, yes. the memory I think of leadership structure, you can criticize it as much as you want. And it may, may have been foul to begin with, but that there was something that was structured enough that was pulverized. And then that is something that sort of lingers on that you don't see the natural structuring that I think goes back to initial, the initial point that you want to see a political reawakening, not just civil society, not just NGOs and not just mm -hmm. discussions. You want to see politics. Is, is it fair to put that in perspective and say that there's a reluctance to go down that road? Def definitely uh, the assassination had its toll on the March 14 movement, the way it started. It's it's not easy, and 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 uh, again, there is a reason why those who were against March 14 resorted to assassination because it worked. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would have picked a different path mm -hmm. to yeah. to undermine that movement, and it worked. It it let people to give up. And the most important thing is, sometimes you find zeal in Lebanon. Despite the assassination, we're not going to change our point of view. Zero fear. After every assassination, we come up with a slogan, and then it fades away with time. However, the regional and international powers that we're hoping by exerting pressure on Lebanon, maybe March 14, can bring about a change. They started to see maybe we have to stop because... We don't want to destabilize Lebanon. So in this regard, I would say the assassination mainly worked with those who were trying to help Lebanon bring about a change because they were afraid. Don't push it too much. Lebanon is like Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> you cannot put it together again. It took 15 years, you know, it's 15 years of civil war, Ronnie, and then Saddam invaded Kuwait. It took an invasion of an Arab country of another country for the world to come and say, let's put Lebanon together, let's do the Taif Accord and let's end it. It took a major event. 
Because Lebanon is so difficult. If you disrupt it, it's so, you break it, you own it. The pottery barn uh, slogan. That's why I think the Europeans, the Americans, the regional Arab, you know, major players in Lebanon discovered, you know what? If we continue to push to change the ground and realities in Lebanon, we, we, if we are afraid we may be disrupting what we call the stability and reconciliation of Lebanon, the natural reconciliation. So in this regard, the assassination killed the appetite of those who are trying to help Lebanon. And we started to see a setback and, 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 and those who were trying to help Lebanon financially, politically at the United Nations, the International Tribun Tribunal, losing, not, I don't want to say losing interest, but kind of, you know, uh, uh, they, were, they were no longer enthusiastic mm -hmm. about the future of Lebanon. And this is when you begin making deals under the table. You know, this is actually a great segue to two things. First, the article. And second, a conversation I had just a few hours ago <laughs> with, with Yom Nafawah. So I think it sort of lines up perfectly that there's an echo of history reoccurring. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to just quote you to you for a moment from the piece, Virtual Victory Lap by Tehran. And quote, in 1990, Lebanon paid the price of appeasing Syria's Hafiz Assad following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the launching of the Arab-Israeli peace process. Outsourcing Lebanon to Assad was justified at the time as a need to end the civil war and bring stability to Lebanon. By trading stability for sovereignty, Lebanon ended up without either. So with that framework, I'd like to go another step further. And I, I firmly believe this, and I'm glad that this is in the piece. And I think, I think there's a foundational issue that is being talked about today that was mostly ignored, is that modest reform, or even for that matter, minimum achievement today in Lebanon may not be possible without addressing sovereignty. And I'm convinced at this point, but you can sort of, if you can convince me otherwise, I would appreciate it. I'm convinced that that issue that you're, that you're discussing, but it's also sort of, it's more and more obvious that all sensitive sites, all sensitive issues, all important functionings of the state today, they're not, they're not working. And they are increasingly not working, not just because Lebanon is tied up into a geopolitical mess, not just because of the neighborhood, but that there is a sub-state proxy that has by and large paralyzed those sensitive sites and has removed that discussion from the table entirely. There was a time where you could discuss it in certain ways, but that was more just talk rather than policy. I'm particularly honing into the Ba'abda Declaration that was all in just, it was just all in writing, but never actually took place. That this issue may be a paramount stumbling block to at least having something that can wobble, forget walking on its own two feet, forget recovering, just in terms of not having this permanent paralysis and collapse, which, which you described at the beginning. And I think I agree, the state has collapsed. I, I, I'm convinced that this is the fundamental issue that has not been addressed and needs to be. And that's the turning point from civil war to post-civil war. But I'd like to know you if you, if you see it that way or if you see it slightly differently, or if you disagree that this is not the fundamental issue. It, it is not a black and white, and it's not a simple answer. Mm. There is some truth to the way you narrated 
the, the, the issue. And we have we are a dysfunctional state. I mean, whether we like it or not, this is where we are. Yeah. And 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 this is a country. And then year 2021, we are still debating how to to bring power to the country and how to deal with the internet, how to vaccinate people. It's it's a dysfunctional state. And of course, you can you can find a lot of blame in a lot of areas. And again, you cannot ignore the fact that Lebanon. And again, I'm. I'm we are against privatization. Sometimes we hear people, oh, we don't want to privatize things. Lebanon privatize two things they shouldn't have. Defense under the umbrella of resistance. We privatized it. <laughs> and we privatized, we privatized also. You don't privatize. I mean, what, what, what is the fact that we have a resistance? It means the army is not doing its job. So we get we outsource our uh, our our defense of our borders to uh, without without, uh, well, I call it, without getting compensated without it's privatization without getting a cut it's almost privatization exactly. without anything exactly yeah and at the same time you know you you privatized your foreign policy we don't have a foreign policy in Lebanon sometimes it's uh, I remember during the uh, the peace process between Syria and Israel Lebanon was not invited mm-hmm. because Syria used to talk about Lebanon and now. Our foreign policy and international uh, uh, arena, it's always taken into consideration the interests of Iran. Why? Because Iran's, Iran's ally in Lebanon is the most powerful faction in Lebanon. So we privatize two things, our foreign policy and our defense. So these are two of the three things, if you want to call yourself a sovereign nation, the only thing is taxation. Right. And yeah. we most of it is home pay tax. Okay. So yeah, where is this where where is the state? So let's let's go to the fundamentals of, of having a state. We are a dysfunctional state, and we have local leaders that became addicted to sponsorship. And now to sponsorship meaning regional sponsorship. The region and most of those regional powers are occupied with their own domestic problems. So they left their affiliates in Lebanon and disarray. They're lost. The guys, they are addicted. They, they, they used to solicit inter- intervention in Lebanon. We lure people into our affairs. We used to go and beg the world. Now, I always cite the fact that it's all the accords and the agreements that governed the Lebanese political life are named after foreign cities. Cairo Agreement, Taif, right. yeah. Doha. <laughs> when you have a when you have a Sidon agreement or a Tripoli or a Biblos agreement, then you become a nation. We are not. We are always trying to lure people from the outside to come and help us, and then we complain about our sovereignty. Oh, you cannot come and dictate on me. What do you mean I cannot dictate? You are begging for support from the outside, and when you try to seek support from the outside, you lose some of your own independence which we lost a long time ago. And, 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 and I don't think we ever appreciated the meaning of independence of so- or sovereignty in Lebanon. We do not teach our kids in school the real meaning of sovereignty. It's, it's something you write on the wall. It's something, it's a slogan. It's like transparency. And, and, and <laughs> it's, it's em- empty, empty words. These are empty words. We don't have a culture of independence in Lebanon. We don't have a culture of real sovereignty in Lebanon. But but going in that direction, do you see that as the paramount stumbling block to reform? For, forget forget. Um, I mean, it's hard to escape this. But 
let's say that you want to actually implement some minimum, minuscule uh, reform in the country. You want a slightly less corrupt state. Or for that matter, you don't want this level of environmental degradation. You don't want the economy to be this bad. You're trying to just contain the damage. Is that possible without addressing those that fundamental issue? Because I, I agree, sovereignty is is sort of ignored. Yet, yet I don't I don't see states. I, I think, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I think we're beyond patch. Well, I, I I don't think we. I think we are beyond patching works. Hmm. The word reform is no longer valid in Lebanon. You need major change. Hmm. Hmm. Those minimal reforms you're talking about, just we're beyond that. I'm yeah. sorry to use that word. The, the shit is too thick. We're beyond. We're beyond those little reforms. This is like aspirin, Panadol, and 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 you need a major, major change to 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 put Lebanon on track again. So ten years from now, we maybe become a real country again. But to talk about those minimal reforms, I think we are beyond that. Well, let's go then to the bigger story at play which is not happening in Lebanon. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned this. I'm really happy you mentioned this. Cairo Agreement, Ta'if, Doha, neither of the three were actually good for Lebanon. We had Lausanne and Geneva in between, you know, we, 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 you yeah. know but never in Lebanon, but never, never in Lebanon. Lebanon. We had the National Pact, but that's going back in time. And that may be the one verbal understanding that stuck. Otherwise, there isn't much. I completely agree with you on that. I like the way you described it. But going back to this sort of potential, and it seems increasingly likely resumption of talks, whether it's Iran and America mm-hmm. directly, or whether it's sort of under that earlier framework, the JCPOA, et cetera. I'm going to quote you to you again. Today, fears that Lebanon's political independence will be compromised to appease Iran are justified. The only place where Iran feels confident about its clout is in Lebanon because of Hezbollah which has proven to be loyal to Iran and provided Tehran with an advanced base on the Mediterranean and an effective presence at the border with Israel. Hezbollah has become to Iran what Cuban advisors were to Moscow under communist rule. First, I love the reference because I know exactly did what I, did, about. I, did I really publish this? Did I really publish <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, for me, this was, this was great because you... <laughs> You, you know, you, you dated me and you, you dated all of us, those that know what you're talking about. The younger generation, I don't think would have any clue what the Cuban leaders were doing, but it's a great reference. It, it points mm-hmm. to the issue that this is, well, not only is this central to the Lebanese story, but for that matter, it's that this is a long, long-term investment. Iran has spent decades maturing this story, this issue, Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious from your side, as somebody who's paying attention at least to the, the discussions or perhaps the sort of where Lebanon fits in to this, this story. Do you think Iran is even curious about finding a way out of Lebanon? Or is Hezbollah more important to Iran than we all assume? Meaning, meaning that even if you approach the Iranian regime with an alternative, if you were trying to find a creative solution so that this sub-state issue is no longer part of us, that perhaps Iran sees this as the death knell to their own regime and that Hezbollah is not just important, it's the lifeline. Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to understand what can be given in return if those negotiations would take place. 
and how Lebanon would fit in and what could be offered in exchange for not having the 1990s scenario, meaning a 15-year stretch where we're under the thumb of Tehran indirect occupation vis-a-vis Hezbollah. Let's, let's put things in perspective. I think, you know, uh, after the Iranian revolution, uh, 1979, the only successful adventure that the Iranian revolution managed to score in terms of exporting its revolution is Lebanon. Lebanon yeah. they, invest, they invested in blood and treasure. Everywhere else, it used to be like influence, trying to disrupt, what have you. But Lebanon is the only success story for the Iranian revolution's attempt to export its revolution outside its borders. It mm. means a lot to the Iranians. Mm. And they, that's why, despite the crippling sanctions against Iran, their economy is pretty bad. Their, 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 their national currency is worse than the lira in Lebanon, but they never stopped mm-hmm. funding their own allies in Lebanon. It gives you an idea how important Lebanon is in the strategy of the Iranian regime. So they are willing to take, you know, you negotiate the Iranian bazaar, you sit down, you give me this, I give you this. Lebanon is a different ballgame. Mm. And, 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 and even when Syria was still the main power broker in Lebanon, they used to fight with the Iranians, but the Iranians never yielded. They mm-hmm. were always keeping Hezbollah's interest above anything else in Lebanon. So let's establish a fact that Lebanon is so important in the strategy of Iran. The question is, if you are trying to leverage Iran, where would you leverage Iran? You try to go and pressure Iran in a place that means a lot. Mm. If you do that, but not full-heartedly, you end up hurting Lebanon and not Iran. And that's what happened in the past four years, in my view. You oh, try so to this, leverage Iran. So, mm. so either you go and try, you know, it's full-fledged and let's try to separate Lebanon from Iran. Obviously, it's not an easy task because their main ally in Lebanon is the main. It's the main power broker in Lebanon because of a variety of things. I don't think... We, we, we need like one hour to explain why we are here. And, but again, with the West trying to twist the arm of Iran, try to leverage Iran and Lebanon? I don't know. But I can tell you, the Iranians are willing to discuss Yemen. They are willing to discuss their influence and what they do in Bahrain. They are willing to discuss with the West a lot of things. Syria, because Syria is not fully Iranian operation because they have to share with Moscow controlling the Assad regime. But Lebanon for them is a different ballgame. Would the West, would those, would the Arabs be willing to give Iran a huge prize, at least to, to ease its grip over Lebanon? I doubt. Mm. And at the same time, I doubt that Iran would give, give any inch away from its own gains in Lebanon. That's, I believe, where I registered my fears that given these realities, we may end up with a scenario whereby the West, mainly the US and the Europeans would say, you know what, let's appease Iran and Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Let's acknowledge Iran's interests in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And here we go, what can the Lebanese domestically do? I, I, I I believe through hard work and consistency and realistic approach to things. Yes, 
you can change uh, the, the course of events, but it's not going to be easy. The West may say, okay, fine, Lebanon is an Iranian satellite. If they do that, it doesn't mean that we have to, to, to throw the flag and throw uh, the towel and say, oh, and start crying like we did 15 years with Syria. No, you can, you can do something in Lebanon. You can, you can be civil. You can, you can try to, to, to argue with the West. No, you cannot totally ignore Lebanon because Lebanon has a strategic value. And, and, and if, if we have a real uh, politicians uh, 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 putting the interests of Lebanon First, yes, I can make the case today that we do have a, a strategic value. If, and, and today, and trying to explain to the West, don't give Lebanon to Iran like you gave it to Syria in 1990 because it was a big headache. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid, given the situation in Lebanon, the economic situation in Lebanon, the divisions among Lebanese, the division within every sect in Lebanon, what's going on in Syria, the West may not be willing to twist Iran's arm in Lebanon with the new administration. So we have a lot of work as Lebanese, as people who believe that, yes, we can be a viable state to make the case. First to the Lebanese domestically, yes, we can do it. And at the same time, take it on the road. But before you take it on the road and start making a presentation why we have a value and why we deserve to be a state and why we are relevant, we have to do our own homework domestically. And we are not doing it. But fears are justified, and I see it happening. Mm. I, I can I can see it happening even before even before Biden won the presidential election. The French president, when he came into Lebanon, he was appeasing Hezbollah mm-hmm. because because he you know I, I don't want to say anything bad about French policy, but you know they they put their own interests ahead of everything else. They wanted the business of Iran. Today, if sanctions are lifted against Iran, Iran would bring back Qatar, they will buy Airbus. So Europeans do have interest in, 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 in seeing Iran back again and lifting the sanctions against Iran that really crippled the Iranian uh, economy. And, and that's why you saw Macron came into Lebanon. And, and when they met at Astrid he gave Hamadad, the head of Hezbollah bloc, special treatment. And, and it, you know, it, 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 it was clear that the French don't believe you can change anything in Lebanon by isolating Hezbollah. And now they have a White House that sees eye to eye, in my view, mm, mm. with the Europeans, the way things should be done in Lebanon. Let's take that. So the, there's a... A lot of things. <laughs> no, but let's, let's go with that. There's a, perhaps a misguided approach towards Lebanon that is consistent. It happened mm-hmm. in the past. It, it may be happening right now. And it, it, despite sort of shifts in policy, which you described earlier, that there were, yeah, there was four years of a maximum, maximum pressure campaign. And your article even hints at it that four years, and it's perhaps too soon to see whether or not Iran did change its behavior as a result. So the duration is short. But I think the American tension, attention span is short anyway. So there's that. But I'm going to quote you to you again towards the end of the piece. Lebanon is a place where Iran has invested billions of dollars and Tehran is not willing to compromise there. This is certainly going to reflect on the political stability of the country that is still struggling to form a new cabinet and start tackling its economic crises. So you have a Lebanese issue, which is largely domestic, 
you have a political uprising or sorry, not a political uprising. You have, you have an uprising where people want accountability. It's yearned for, it's desperate. You have that negotiation happening above us where you may have a, an approach that's born more out of emotion. And I think Macron sort of displayed some of that at times rather than sound policy of trying to yield positive long-term change. And people like us who are stuck trying to explain the larger story and also trying to implement local change wherever it's possible and also trying to keep the conversation going abroad. And I think this goes back to the discussion that I heard when you were on the Octopus series. What can be done really in terms of, in terms of making sure that Lebanon is not a 1990s story? And I'm curious if it comes down to just expressing a concern that has been used in the past. And I'm going to float an idea. It's an unpopular word, but I think it's unfairly unpopular. And maybe it's been slapped around too much, but I think it should be brought back. Neutrality. And the reason I say this word is because disassociation in itself has led to positive change before. It's not Lebanon. I mean, you go to any example. The Cold War, there were countries that were spared because of that disassociation policy. Post-war environments, disassociation seems to be the key ingredient to making sure the, the, the stability lasts and economic prosperity happens. Lebanon, it's all just talk. You have the patriarch who says it from time to time. You have periods of, of you know, years go by where some, some politicians say it without really knowing what it even means. And I think only recently has there been this sort of upswell of criticism against Hezbollah. And it's born, I think, primarily out of Lukman Slim's assassination, but it was there yes. already. It was building up and it sort of, it's now become a, an hourly occurrence. You see it online, you see it on TV. There is a pressure campaign, at least trying to steer the narrative away from them. So that in itself, I think, is a yearning for some form of disassociation. In that particular case, it's Iran. But I'm talking about a blanket policy. Is it, is it even possible to sell that, sell that strategy, meaning all countries look at Lebanon as a headache? You, you referenced something important, which is that Iran has spent billions and billions of dollars in, in, in Lebanon. I think many countries have spent billions and billions of dollars and have deemed Lebanon a bad investment. And I don't think they'll be spending that money ever again. Is it possible to convince Iran, but any country, to look at Lebanon as just problematic? And if you can neutralize it from the wider struggle, you don't need it. Lebanon is sort of an unfavorable option long-term rather than the one that is used at the moment. And I hope I'm asking it the right way because I'm, I'm really curious whether or not this is still even something- I, 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 see, where, I see where you're heading. I, yeah. I see where you're taking it. Look. Neutrality, it's, 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 uh, it's probably a Lebanese dream, but this is a case where I personally believe that the intellectual debate doesn't match reality. Mm -hmm. The European countries that you talked about that were neutral during World War II, it's not because that country decided to be neutral. The warring countries around that country decided, you know what, let's keep that country away and let's not fight Absolutely. Absolutely. So in Lebanon, it's not us. It's not us who should go to the world and say, oh, we want to be neutral. You want to convince Syria, Israel, Iran, and everybody funding any operation in Lebanon to leave that country, please make us neutral. They have to agree among 
themselves not to fight in Lebanon. We want to be neutral. This is one. Second, it is so difficult, in my view, to call Lebanon to be neutral, although, again, it's a very appealing concept. When you have Palestinian refugees, when you have 1.5 Syrian refugees in Lebanon, how can you call it neutral? How can you call for neutrality when our economy is based on the expats sending money from abroad? And sometimes this abroad is not unified. We talk about the Gulf. A lot of Lebanese work on the Gulf and they send a lot of their money to Lebanon to help and support their families. Sometimes, you know, the Saudis want you to be on their side against the Qataris and the Qataris want you to be on their side against the Saudis and the Emiratis. So the, the whole makeup of our economy, the way we live, Lebanese diaspora, whatever, it makes it a little bit difficult to achieve this goal called neutrality. I'm That's why to, I said I'm, earlier. I'm going to interrupt. I, 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 take, I take liberty please, in interrupting. Yeah, I, I, sorry oh, for this. Please do. No, it's good. Yeah. It's good. Uh, the, the, the consequence of not being... The consequence of not having a disassociation policy invites the tragedies that are sort of now permanent. In other words, oh, definitely. I mean, I'm, yeah. I, I, I would love to have neutrality. I'm not again. I'm not opposed to the concept, but I'm just trying to assess its feasibility. Right. That's so, the, but, that's and I, I completely agree that Austria was neutral by a Cold War scenario. That the yes. Soviets and the Americans said yes, that country yes. will be spared. Finland has echoes of that. Post-war environments that tend to sort of, you're right, the countries let, leave it alone after. I, 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 if it's not a Lebanese yearning, let's say, but that it may be not necessarily a dream, but something that could be attained if all those other countries thought of it that way. Is that the type of messaging that could occur when it, when it comes to this sort of linkage from Lebanese here or Lebanese abroad? and trying to keep Lebanon, trying to keep the case alive. Because I don't know, I don't know what else could really be fought for at this moment when it comes to these sort of bigger deals. Because I, and I, I'm going, going to go back a bit to the beginning. I think despite the best efforts of everyone, everyone, and these are Lebanese abroad, Lebanese here, and trying to save this country, whether it's through their own money or through their time and effort, no one got paid for that. Everyone sort of, I think, lost years of their life and probably have excess gray hair as a result of what's happened to this country. Or maybe some of us are losing our hair. I'm lucky I still have some on my head, but I'm, go I'm, go I'm breaking down in every I'm, other I'm place. I'm older than you. I'm you're older. You're than older. You. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, yeah, I'm going to, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to learn <laughs> that this is, this is inevitable. But, but the, the pain and agony and the valiant effort. And then... We're in a situation where we're deeper, deeper and deeper into regional problems. Is there a way to at least sell that as an option for everyone who has flirted with Lebanon for perhaps all the wrong reasons to sort of just give this country a break, leave it alone. This it is gives... the word. This is, this is yeah. the word. Give the country a break. There must be something that is not keeping the country the way it is, a battlefield, but at the same time, Maybe neutrality is kind of a stretch. Somewhere mm -hmm. in between, maybe we can find a crack and say, "Look, can you give us a can you give us a break for a while until we get our act together?" And I give you an example: the armistice agreement between Lebanon and Israel. Mm -hmm. I never thought about it, but right now I was listening to you. It just you inspired me. 
is the only successful attempt by Lebanon to come so close to neutrality. And mm-hmm. it worked. Mm-hmm. It shielded Lebanon from a lot of wars with Israel. Mm-hmm. The Armistice Agreement of 1949. And it still represents the basics of the relationship, if I want to call it the relationship, or, or the, 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 uh, the arrangement that took place between Lebanon and Israel. Mm-hmm. From 1949, maybe we can revive the 1949, build on that success, because the armistice agreement between Lebanon and Israel, that's not a real ceasefire, but just give me a break. I'm not signing a peace with you, but Lebanon is new to right now. We did not participate in 1967. We did not participate in 1973. So Lebanon was spared mm-hmm. a lot of wars because of that armistice agreement. We didn't call it neutrality. Right. Because neutrality in the, in the Arab context, it's a bit difficult. Look, you cannot call neutrality unless you have peace with Israel. And if you have peace with Israel, most conflicts in the Middle East would cease to exist. Then you don't need neutrality. To call neutrality and say, and let's not have peace with Israel, I see it as an oxymoron thing. Neutrality I, 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 without... Yeah. I, I think disassociation is the word to use because you can identify the problem without taking part in the problem. And I think that Fine. is... Yeah, but but I agree with you. So let, let's go. You know, it's it's a great it's a great example. That's an armistice line that was signed by two parties with some oversight, and Lebanon abided and it by worked. it. Worked. It worked and, until and Israel did, and Israel did until the Cairo Agreement, right? So nineteen sixty nine. Exactly. So I I completely agree with you. So th- there, there's that issue, right? Cairo Agreement mm-hmm. robs Lebanon of its sovereignty. Suddenly, you have a militia, a popular militia, a very popular mm-hmm. one that enters the Lebanese scene. And five years later, you have militia killing each other. The right. whole disassociation delicate sort of concept is it implodes on itself. Ta'if ensures that disassociation will never happen. Not only is Syria going to now deem what is right and wrong in our history, Hezbollah is given a pass. The Southern border, that armistice line is worthless because Hezbollah now has a security has a security raison d'etre, which, which exceeds Syria, it exceeds Israel, it exceeds everything. Suddenly we're at war with Israel in 2006. So what I mean is disassociation so that those conflicts do not keep going. And then you remove conflict from the story and maybe our economy can in 50 years be okay. I think that's the driving force behind it that Lebanon doesn't need to pay the price every every generation for every regional issue. And that now, now it's Iran. But I mean, in your lifetime, you remember a very different Iran. It wasn't Iran. Of course. It was the Arab-Israeli conflict. That doesn't really, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite fascinating that that conflict, although it brought many refugees to this country, we're not fighting in that conflict right now. The sort of the one group that claims to be the sort of the, the resistance force against that country is busy in everything else. So that even the conflict evolves, but the the violence remains, the sub-state issues remain, and the paralysis mm-hmm. gets worse and worse and worse. So is that, just in terms of long-term messaging, is that something that's worth people's time, trying to, trying to find a consensus to leave Lebanon alone? Forget neutrality, just leave it alone. It's toxic, leave it alone. It's not worth anyone's time. Is there, is there any merit I, I, there? I think at one point, you need to protect your investment. Mm, mm. If the Iranian invested in Lebanon, they're not suicidal. You want to protect your investment. Right. At 
one point, if we can argue with them, mm. it's to your best interest to keep Lebanon safe and stable. And let's give Lebanon a break mm. and rein in Hezbollah and don't use it as a negotiating card. Mm. It may, it may work. But again, you have to go back to Iran and mm. say to the Iranians, maybe it's time to let Hezbollah play really the local and domestic game. Mm. So we can sit down on a table and negotiate. So you open the bazaar of the market of ideas, how to build a better country. Because Hezbollah, I think, again, their strategy is not far away from even, even non-state actors, although they're called non-state, but they behave like states every once in a while right, when, right. They con- when they control the land. In the South, Hezbollah is trying to establish a deterrence. To do what? In my view, a deterrence to protect the 1949 armistice agreement because they are thinking like a state. But if you can make it really uh, taking the Lebanese interest into concentration and nothing else, maybe it's an opening. The really question is, can you coexist between uh, 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 Hezbollah, a well-trained army, a sub-state, and a prosperous Lebanon. This is something that the late Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri tried to do, mm. to de-conflict Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I don't know if you remember the slogan at the time, people would say, well, you want Lebanon, Hong Kong, or Hanoi? Right, right. But, but right now, it doesn't work this way because I believe Hanoi is more prosperous than Hong Kong. <laughs> Things have changed. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's no, longer, it's no longer a valid comparison. But again... I, I don't think Cuban can advisors can they, can have they, much they, relationship today. Yeah. <laughs> Right. right. That, that, can you do, can you can you do two things at the same time? It's is it is it are they two opposing values mm. to say I have a resistance and I want to be uh, uh, I, I want to have a deterrence policy and at the same time say oh Lebanon is open for business and and let's think about rebuilding Lebanon. It may sound a bit of paradoxical in my view. Mm. You cannot have it both ways in my view. You, you you reach a point you have to choose. You have to make up your mind. Things have changed. Uh, even for the Israelis, things have changed. You, you, uh, the, the, the strategic depth that they used, to, they used to talk about when they negotiate with Arabs in terms of security arrangements are no longer valid. Right. Because right now you have cyber, you have cyber attacks, you have, you have short-range missiles, you have the drones. Everything you know, has to be taken into consideration. And, and every country is going back to the drawing board and trying to to come up and update their own talking points and their own views. Right. And, but, but, but again, I, I, I don't want to leave it just as a passing remark. Hezbollah today is protecting the armistice agreement. They don't want to have a peace agreement with Israel, but at the same time, they don't want a war. So what is that? It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, the armistice agreement. Right. Born out of a long, painful, recent memory of war with Israel. So that's also, I think, part of, that's the hesitation at knowing that the Israelis will really wreak havoc on this country. And there's a severe price to pay if that line is crossed. So I think that's also a, I don't, I mean, it's not a benevolent protection of a UN uh, ceasefire or an armistice line. It's more a, uh, inherited that story and it may not have been for the right reasons but i 
there's there's two other issues I want to get at, and I'm taking too much of your time, but I'm really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> I, I am enjoying it as well. So the, the first one, I'm just curious from your side, you're somebody who's been in media for a while and in, in, in mainstream media, tra- traditional media. I, re- I remembered your name from Al-Hayat in, in DC. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, there was some advisory role with MTV at some point here. So there's- also, still is. And still is. Okay, so there's that, you're involved, you have, an, you have a role to play in the written word today in the Daily Star and also traditional media, a Lebanese TV station. But as somebody who's able to now sit back a bit, sort of having, you've had an illustrious career in, in media, this independent media phenomenon. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that you're willing to talk to me, but who am I? I'm a guy with a microphone. And it's not just me, obviously, there's, there's all types of outfits. You have online sources now that only exist online. You have social media sources that only really exist on social media. A lot of them are Lebanese and they're doing a lot of, they're, they're doing a lot of work on the ground. I'm curious if you see this as sort of the, the appropriate venue for where we are now, that independent media, alternative media, whatever you want to call it. I have thousands of listeners at a time. Uh, Megaphone, I think their numbers are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Daraj Media has its own platform and there's other podcasts is that the appropriate place to have these discussions? I'm, I'm, I, I am, I'm so happy you raised that issue because I was talking about it this morning with a close friend of mine. I can assure you, and, and, and I'm going to surprise a lot of people because I, I work on conventional media. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I believe in the digital world and taking advantage of the technology that makes it easy for everyone to have your own venue, you have to have your own platform. Unfortunately, this venue this platform that you have offered me is one of the few independent media that we have in Lebanon. Mm. When you come, and I'm telling you, when you compromise sovereignty, what comes with it, not only the state, also the media. I do not believe in Lebanon. We have independent media. We have independent journalists. Mm. And again, I'm going to say something even stronger. The media in Lebanon is an extension of the corrupt political system. We we engage, not me or my 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 friends and other. I don't want to name anybody. We engage. I thought, in I thought you were going to we say don't. it would have been so funny. No. Except MTV. No, no, <laughs> no. I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm, kidding. I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> we, we, even I know. I know. That's why I kind of I want to parse my my yeah, my, yeah. my sentence carefully. Not because I I'm, I'm hiding anything talking about the media in general. In Lebanon, we don't have independent media because we cannot sustain our own operation. What you have offered me, because it doesn't cost, we are, you, ha- you offered me an independent platform right now. I can speak myself because you, you made me that offer. I believe in this. And I think what you said and the other entities that you have mentioned, as well as others, are the only uh, independent media today in Lebanon. We engage in a cover-up. We don't cover corruption. I call it cover-up. We do not, we, most of the, the existing media, when they talk about corruption, they raise an issue, they get paid, they shut up. It's widespread. And when you say, all of them, the media, I'm not journalists, I believe in Lebanese individual journalists. We have great guys. Great, professional, independent journalists. For, for listeners, you won't be able to tell, but for the mm-hmm. viewers, sure. Rafa, I like the 
earphones, the old-fashioned ones. <laughs> AirPods die. So we're back to the old school, you know, shrit, shrit. Anyway, yeah. So it, it works. It works. It works. It's safer. So I'll, I'll just plan B. <laughs> plan B. But uh, please, yeah, I, I loved your the way you were introducing the subject that in independent media and, and alternative media, that's where the that's where independence really exists today. So I'll give you the floor again. Yes. When when you compromise your sovereignty as a nation, you cannot say I have an independent media. We are affected. We lost we, we lost Lebanon lost its sovereignty and the media lost its independence in Lebanon because you don't have a vibrant economy that can sustain and support real independent media. So uh, 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 entities like like yours, like the ones that you have mentioned, and there are plenty of them in Lebanon, and I enjoy them. And not only because they offer a platform where we can debate ideas, they are widespread, and I can feel it. I do one of those mm-hmm. webinars, and the next day I get a lot of phone calls. You, you, you called me, you invited me to your show because right. you heard me speaking and another one. So this is the alternative media is the future until we have a real economy that can support a real independent media. The, the media in Lebanon today, I, I hate to admit because I'm, 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 I'm working in the, independent, in, in the conventional media in Lebanon. It's an extension of the dysfunctional, corrupt system. We do have independent journalists. We do have professional journalists and all uh, media organizations and Lebanon and media outlets. But unfortunately, we do not have independent media. And when you do not have independent media, you cannot claim the role of a real function, of a real functional media and a democratic society, which is a watchdog role. Because we cover up, we don't cover. We raise a corruption file and we get paid and we shut up. This is what's going on right now. You see a war going on between TV channels every once in a while. In 1990, when, when Lebanon issued its first private law to mm-hmm. privatize media and allow uh, 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 private uh, uh, channels in Lebanon, they took away from parties weapons, but they gave them channels. If you listen to the intros of every TV channel, this is like random shelling. It's, 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 it, the, the media in Lebanon, unfortunately, but again, I don't want to generalize. I have a lot of friends and I respect them. And, and we do have really brave, courageous journalists. That's why rich Arab networks, when they want to staff their own networks, they come to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of journalists and they are striving and doing great outside Lebanon. But unfortunately, in Lebanon, we do not have today independent media. We have independent uh, adventures, if I may call yours as an adventure, because I know it's not making you enough money to, to, to support you. But I enjoy it, and I think it's a great alternative, given how much people have uh, uh, trust in those little and, and, and effective uh, outlets like yours. And the level of mistrust in conventional media in Lebanon, I would say, and I don't want to exaggerate, is equal the mistrust between the Lebanese public and their politicians. I would love to see a public opinion survey asking Lebanese, do you trust your channels? Do you trust the media in Lebanon? Don't ask them only if you trust parliament or the president or the politicians. Ask them if they trust their media. I like that framework. And um, I think, and I, I, I sort of increasingly see it that you're describing a situation that's beyond an independent journalist's control. So the talented, the, the courageous, let's say, 
cannot really do much because of those built-in constraints. Of course. On, on let's say the majority of networks. I think if you take extrapolate that, in the last 30 years, 31 years since the civil war ended, there were many decent people that did try to implement change from within and they ended up sort of stuck in that situation that they, the, 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 the structure does not allow independent, independent voices, real independent voices from pushing through. And I'll go one step further. Um, I think October 17, sort of the initial sort of outburst, there was a new independent voice. It was the, the average person who had not been through war, a 25 year old who only grew up in the post-war environment, uh, the youth that were online, sort of sharing everything, WhatsApp, mm -hmm. Instagram, Twitter, these were, I think, independent-minded for the for the large part. They were not. They're not a direct consequence of the civil war. They're actually growing up in the post-war environment. They may have leanings, and I think probably independent journalists in Lebanon may have their own personal leanings, but that mm -hmm. didn't prevent them from going the extra step. And I think that's where all these alternative outlets came from. It's almost a it's that big void in Lebanon that there wasn't. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shining example. I mean, alternative voices are amazing. Right. And, and now at, at, at times, with all due respect to the conventional media, which is still important in Lebanon, I never look at TV. I never. I don't either. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't remember the last time I turned my TV on. The, Ronnie, they're, not, they're no longer the primary source of trusted information for the Lebanese individual. But may I ask from, from, from your side, since you are you still mm -hmm. have some, you have a role within the conventional media, is there an attitude that is changing from within? So do, I mean, in other words, do you sense that there's an appetite and it's growing, or is it really still the same situation that you're stuck? I and unfortunately, I mean those who own those stations are good people and they look mm -hmm. at it as a it's an industry. It's, it's business. Mm -hmm. You have families. You have salaries to pay at the end of, of the month. So right. you, you yeah. cannot see them outside that context. Mm -hmm. So those people have to, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's about keeping their jobs, about you know uh, trying to pay electricity, trying to pay bills, trying to pay social security. So you have to look at it not only in terms of content, but it's, it's an industry that you have to protect, mm -hmm. especially the advertising and uh, uh, pie in Lebanon is shrinking again because the economy right. is terrible. So right. how can you survive? How can you yeah. survive? And again, because it's a private sector, they are not entitled to go and ask for state funds. They should not. I'm personally against private media seeking help from the government. You should not. This is private. Doesn't private sector. Yeah. If it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, shut it down. Otherwise, yeah. you stay. You right. are not allowed. So, so I can see... Uh, I, I mean, I'm very pessimistic about the future of conventional media in Lebanon. A lot of them shut down. A lot of them cut their the size of their operation. A lot of print media went out of business. And I do not see enough rev commercial revenues in Lebanon, conventional commercial revenues in Lebanon, enough to support one TV channel. And then you start wondering, where is that money coming from to continue right. operating? And this is when we go back to the independence and compromising. Independence is like compromising sovereignty you know and the this first is where person, we are today I, I i've never heard it described this way i'm glad you did because i've never thought of it as sort of sovereignty and media and the synergy within 
And you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I think we're almost, we're now right in the middle. For my own personal example, I had to do research in two ways. I, I listened to you on an alternative media platform, mm-hmm. Zoom, a Zoom call. I mean, that, that sure. is, there's no sort of outlet beaming the Zoom call. It was just, you have to register and you're in. Mm-hmm. There's that. And I also read your articles in the Daily Star, which is conventional. I mean, it's a traditional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, in a way, it's both, I think today, are maybe increasingly. It's a hybrid. Today. It's a hybrid. Yeah. It's a hybrid. We're not. Hybrid. Right. Final question. And this is something I, I'd like to ask you because you, you mentioned it in our private uh, private message earlier. I think it was several days ago. I did not know this, so I, I should know because it's sort of it would make sense time wise and city wise. Uh, you mentioned that you knew my father, and you met him. I'm I'm assuming from his DC days when he was yes probably either as an ambassador to the U.S. or maybe at the IMF or maybe both. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm going to let you sort of explain when you knew him. But my my guess is that embassy days i'm going to guess it's it's around then just if you can if you can as much as you can share from maybe a personal story or something that stuck with you because i always like hearing about him through other people on their terms this is not my memory of him this is someone else's memory of him so I'm, 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 I'm really i'm glad i'm glad you gave me the chance to talk about it and i i, I tried not to quote him during our conversation because i don't want to interject something personal to you, but I'm glad you asked. No, no, but then I'd be like, hold on, I've heard that quote before. (laughs) No, but I'll tell you what, what, because one of the ideas, I used to discuss it with him in Washington. He was one of the greatest diplomats that we we had in Washington, and I had the chance to see him working as an ambassador in Washington at a time when our foreign policy was hijacked by Syria. He maintained independence and relevance. But I'll tell you, the first time I met him, I think we have a common friend, Dr. Nadim Mullah, Oh, sure. Because he was working for the IMF, your yeah. dad. And then he became ambassador, and I was writing in Washington. And I know your mom, your mom, please give her my best. Lovely lady. And I used to she'll, see him a lot. She'll of, be watching this episode, I, I guarantee. It's, it's a Washington thing. But I, I want to share something with you. The last time I saw your dad, Allah Yerhamu, in, in, in downtown Beirut, mm. Lina Cafe, and he was walking alone. And I said to him, You're alone. He said to me, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why should they? Why should I fear for my safety? That's the last discussion, conversation I had with you that I saw him in Beirut. I said to him, do you think it's safe? He said, I'm not doing anything wrong. He was, and, and, and this is something I believe in. And I wrote it, and I think when I talked about Lokman Sleep, when you rely on your enemy being rational. You become a hostage to your enemy being rational. Because when they decide to be irrational, you lose it. Don't become a hostage to the rationale and the logic of your enemy. Your dad was logical. He thought those who kill in Lebanon see in him no value because he's not doing anything against them in terms of crossing red lines. He's a man of great ideas. The mistake he made is he was betting on them remaining rational. Don't depend on your enemy remaining rational all the time. Because when they lose it, you pay the price. You know, do you remember when that conversation happened? Can you maybe date it? (laughs) 
I would say like few months before he was few months uh, before assassinated. Yeah. So oh, yes. the, okay. I'm, the reason I'm asking because we agreed because we agreed to say let's have coffee. He said, but when do you want? Is it safe here? He was walking alone. He was walking alone. But I think so. The reason I'm I'm asking, and uh, I'm going to take liberty in saying this. Um, Please. I, I used to have these conversations with him all the time, and I I don't know if it was a mistake because I think my father willingly knew that he was doing his best. To, and at times he was alone, literally alone, not just walking mm-hmm. alone, but alone in his ideas, alone in his advocacy of certain policies, alone completely. When he would give me permission to sort of enter his world and talk to him, I think he was well aware of their irrational behavior. He lost too many friends that way. Of course. Uh, and of course. Uh, Nadim Munla and uh, their common friend, Basil Flehan, is the most obvious. Of course. Ba- ba- Basil is a close friend of mine. You know, yeah. So, I'm, right. Of course. Yeah. So I, I, I think, I think, and I'm not, I'm not trying to remove from that story. I love the, I love the imagery you're describing because I know exactly I can imagine him walking up from Lena. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think he knew that he was committing his life to Lebanon. Now, I don't know if he knew that the, the minutes after he was posting a tweet on his phone in the car, yes, that there would be a yes. car bombing. I don't know. That last, that. yeah. Yeah, I'd like to think that he was, I'd like to think that that was just a tweet that emerged naturally that morning, that this was not sort of a forewarning that the end could be near. I'd like mm. to think that's just something that he would write in the morning. But that said, I'm, I'm hell convinced. I'm, I'm positive about this. He was given every opportunity to leave Lebanon. He, he didn't. Offered, yeah, he was offered a job to go back to the IMF. Sure. Actually offered. I think he could have probably retired in some post at some embassy in, in Rome and just sort of lay of back and call it a day. He kept going and going and going until the, until the last seconds. So I think, I think he knew that this was a group that was hunting down other people regularly, but that it didn't really matter to him. You know, so, so, sometimes we, we, when we see investigations and these kind of things, we may know who, how, mm-hmm. when, the technique, but it would always be debatable. Right. Why? The why yeah. is the, yeah. the, the question that we will never have an answer for. We can, we can talk about it forever. We can guess. Mm-hmm. Unless you get and arrest exactly those who gave the orders, we will never know the why. Like the International Tribunal. Now we know who pulled the trigger, the trigger who funded, how they did it. Those who killed Rafir Hariri. But until today, we have theories about the why. We don't have the why. Because we did not arrest yet those who sat down in that room and made that decision. And I, I would love to know one day somebody will defect and we say I was in the room and that person made the decision because of an idea that Dr. Shata was floating around that they found it very dangerous if it picks up speed. It's an idea. They killed him because of his ideas. Your dad was not militant. So. Yeah, and I think uh, when ideas challenge their security apparatus, they they decide to eliminate. They their, yeah. unfortunately. I, I think that's the unfortunate. unfortunate reality. That also I think helps explain something which is odd. You can criticize them, you can scream. I mean, sometimes I, I mean Dima Sade is a recent example where she sort of vents her frustration. They can ban MTV from certain areas, maybe. They can try to sort of curtail. They can censor to a point. 
but I don't think criticism is what gets you eliminated. And that's something may, that- May I, may I, may yeah. I say something in this regard? Sure, I'm sure, sorry sure, to please. interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. Ass- assassins are criminals, but they're smart. They know who to, they know who to kill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They pick their targets very, very carefully. Yeah, they do. So, and uh, unlike unlike the old days that we know, because of just age, uh, mm-hmm. looking at looking at Hafiz al Assad, a photo, a poster, you'd have to second guess who was next to you out of fear. That's not the situation Correct. we live in now. We live in something which is a lot murkier. That there's a red line that's not always visible, but once you mm-hmm. approach it, it's it, it happens. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm thank you for letting me go down that tunnel with you. I rarely, I rarely uh, go that deep on the podcast when it comes to that issue I'm, in particular. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you gave me the, the chance to to say what I said. Thanks. But I will say something. Uh, I've done nearly 250 episodes, and I, I really learn a lot from people that have had experience, whether it's through journalism, whether it's through advocacy, whether it's through just simple persuasion. You've been doing this for quite some time and you've been in between Lebanon and the States. I think in recent memory, you go back and forth regularly. So with that said, I've learned a lot today and I, I appreciate your time. And I think uh, this is the conversation of, of our of our generation. It's sort thank of, you very much. it's where we are and you illustrated it quite effectively. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.